I ended up getting a job at Microsoft. Now, back in 1998, that was the dream job. Microsoft back then was like Apple today. Yeah. And I was one of those like 1% of American engineers who made it to Microsoft. 11 weeks into Microsoft, I realized that my heart really was in the creative space. What I enjoyed doing was performing arts. I was teaching swing dancing in Seattle. I was doing photography, but I just couldn't bring myself to code. So I quit Microsoft. I moved to New York City. I got a job under the poverty line, and I didn't tell my parents. I am Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas and personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to the Mind Valley podcast. Today's episode is with Chase Jarvis, the brilliant American photographer and founder of Creative Life. But what you're going to listen to is what I call a reverse podcast. I'm not interviewing Chase. Chase is interviewing me. Recently, Chase Jarvis asked me to appear on Creative Lives podcast to discuss my books, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, The Buddha and the Badass, and some of my best practices in human transformation. I think you will really enjoy the conversation. So this is a reverse podcast where I got permission from Chase to share the conversation with you. Enjoy. Hi, Chase. Firstly, I've been a member of Creative Live for many years right now. I started out as a creator, like most of your audience, as an entrepreneur working from my bedroom and then whatever was the closest Starbucks in the vicinity. So I love your audience. I've been part of your audience, and it's a real honor to be on the show. Oh, I'm so grateful. And I can say the same about Mind Valley. You guys have been doing super cool stuff. And I want to trace back the roots of starting Mind Valley. But before we do, Let's talk about current times because you are, or we are rather, on opposite sides of the planet. You're in Kuala Lumpur right now. Is that right? Yes, I am. I am. Well, can you give us a little bit of the flavor on the ground there? And for you personally, how you've been managing your time in this strange world that we're living in now? So Mind Valley. well, firstly, Mind Valley is an American company. So I shuttle between the U.S. and Kuala Lumpur. I'm Malaysian-born. We have a beautiful office over here where... All our, our graphic designers, our filmmakers are based. Kuala Lumpur is a hotbed for creativity. Some of the world's top design and art schools are located here. So I tend to shuttle back and forth. But what's happening here right now is that Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, is under one of the strictest lockdowns anywhere in the world. You're wow. not even allowed to walk your dog. So get this. I actually had to give my dog away to one of my employees who has a lawn because we're in an apartment here. We're only allowed to leave for medical supplies and for groceries. But the good thing about that is that we've really been able to flatten the curve. So there's no panic here. The hospitals are not at overcapacity. But I also identify with America. Like in my heart, I'm American. And it really is is a strange and difficult time when I read the news of what's going on, especially in cities like New York. I started this company in New York, so it's really hard to see and read the news on a daily basis. Yeah, incredible. And uh, you went to school over here, is that right? I see Michigan. I did. I did. I, did. I went to the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Well, amazing to have the ability to sort of have a foot in both cultures and I'm sure it's a benefit in so many ways for Mind Valley. I want to talk about that managing a remote team, for example, as a as an extension of what we're all experiencing right now. But I do want to go. Let's pull on this New York thread for a little bit. So the company was founded here. You went to school in in Michigan, but how did you migrate from Michigan to New York before 
splitting time, if you will, between Malaysia and the east coast of the U.S.? So when I was a student at Michigan, there was this amazing summer program. It was called Alternative Spring Break. And <laughs> I got to go to New York for the first time in my life and volunteer at the Boys and Girls Club at Madison Square Gardens. So this was a club for disadvantaged boys and girls, young kids. And I got to volunteer and teach them art and teach them, you know, other skills. And I fell in love with New York. And so after I graduated, that became my dream destination for where I wanted to live. I ended up moving to New York. I started working for a nonprofit there. And New York is my favorite city in the world. That is where I ended up starting Mind Valley. Wow. Wow. Well, all right, then I'm going to put a pin in that. I want to go way back. So Malaysian born, I'm dying to know, is there an entrepreneurial spirit in your family? Are you the first in line to launch a company and become a best-selling author? Is this part of your upbringing? Give us a little bit of a little bit of color of your childhood for those who are new to it. And for myself, because this is the first time we have been on the phone and we've been in similar circles for years. It's just it's a great treat to have you on the show. But I'm like, this is genuine. We, we actually muffled. We stopped the conversation before. We often have so much banter before we even go live. We're just like, wait, let's just save it for real, real time. So give well, me the scoop. So I was born in an Indian immigrant family in Malaysia. Now, if you're born in an Indian immigrant family, You have three choices in life. You become, actually, you have four choices in life. You become a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, or a family failure, right? (laughs) So I decided that I needed to be an engineer. I went to the University of Michigan to study computer engineering, but I soon realized that I I just didn't resonate with my schoolwork. You know what really fascinated me, Chase? Photography. No way. was my number one subject. So in every excuse I got... I would be in a photography studio making my prints. I fell in love with black and white photography. I would love to be in a lab playing with chemicals, creating my own prints. Now, I ended up getting a job at Microsoft. Now, back in 1998, that was the dream job. Microsoft back then was like Apple today. And I was one of those like 1% of American engineers who made it to Microsoft. 11 weeks into Microsoft, I realized that my heart really was in the creative space. What I enjoyed doing was performing arts. I was teaching swing dancing in Seattle. I was doing photography, but I just couldn't bring myself to code. So I quit Microsoft. I moved to New York City. I got a job under the poverty line, and I didn't tell my parents. (laughs) And, And I would do crazy shit. Like I went to Bosnia after the war to act as a photographer and a photojournalist. I had my first big photography spread, my first big exhibition, black and white photography called 24 Hours in Sarajevo, post-war photography. So I was just so into this space. But the problem is I couldn't make money. Yeah, I just couldn't figure out how to make money. I lived below the poverty line. And then one day, Silicon Valley became a hotspot. And I decided, all right, let me try moving to Silicon Valley. Now, I, I didn't enjoy programming, but I loved building products because building products was a creative expression of your soul. So I came up with an idea for a new type of community software, right? It was a new type of community software. And I moved to Silicon Valley, borrowed 30 grand from my dad with the intention of building this product. This was before blogs took off. It was before Mm -hmm. blogging was popular. So this was early 2000s. 
Like yeah. maybe something. Yeah. It was like 2000, 2001. It was a virtual diary. So what happened was my timing sucked. <laughs> Within months of me moving there, the dot-com bubble burst. I lost everything. And the next thing you know, I was renting a couch from a Berkeley college student because I couldn't even afford an apartment. So I was sending out my resume to every job I could get on Craigslist. And I get this call from a guy who had volunteered at the same nonprofit I used to work for. And he says, look, everyone who works at this nonprofit, it was a nonprofit dedicated to world peace. You know, you've got a good soul. I'll hire you. But the only job I have in my company is sales. So you need to pick up the phone and sell technology to lawyers. So here I was, this creative person, this person who loves creating, and now I'm in this boring job, picking up a phone, interrupting lawyers in the middle of their workday. And you know what happens when you interrupt a lawyer in the middle of his workday? You will hear more fuck off kids than you <laughs> dare to imagine you will hear in a given day. So one day after I think it was the 12th or the 13th lawyer told me to fuck off for interrupting his workday, I sank into a depression. I had no money. My car was a wreck because I couldn't fix the brakes. I'd crashed into another car and I didn't have insurance. And my life was just a mess. And I knew that this couldn't continue. So I got on Google and I think I typed, I can't remember what I typed in. It was something like, why does life suck so bad? Or Google, please help me. Back then, Google was new. We thought it was like some magical engine. And I found a class on meditation. I took that class. And now the interesting thing about this class is, it was about tapping into intuition to increase your creativity and your level of inspiration. And it didn't actually publicly say this, but it was also about developing intuitive ability, what we sometimes refer to as psychic potential. So I go back to my sales job. Now, back then, we would go to the San Francisco Public Library, check out the Yellow Pages, and I had to call every lawyer from A to Z in San Antonio, Texas. But I learned how to go into this space of just thinking within, right, to move my hands down the yellow pages and know intuitively who to call. Okay, now I'm going to ask that your audience just has an open mind here. Sure. I can't explain it, Chase, but overnight, I doubled my closing rate. I was making two and a half grand a month. That's what you made maybe closing three sales a month. Two and a half grand is barely enough to survive in San Francisco. Overnight, I doubled my closing rate. Now I was making five grand a month. And my sales continued doubling and doubling and doubling and doubling. In four months, I got promoted three times with no experience in sales. They made me director of sales. They sent me to New York to start their New York office. I continued with this company for 18 months. But then again, my intuition said, I have to do something more with my life. And I remember reading a quote by Nelson Mandela, and you'll resonate with this. Mandela said, if you want to change the world, change education. So you started Creative Life, and I thought, I want to start a way to get more people to meditate. So I became a meditation instructor. I became a web designer. I taught myself how to build a website. I taught myself how to teach classes, and I started my meditation practice. And that was the birth of Mind Valley. Did you quit your job before training, or did you, was there a transition when you were lying to your boss and your sales numbers were going down because that is the magic for so many people, right? Yeah. They either don't have the luxury of turning off this source of income. And so they need to have a roadmap of sorts to be able to transition from one or another, or, you know, I don't know what your case is. Some people are just like, okay, great. I don't have any kids or dependents or my costs are low so I can afford to just go for it. What was your situation? 
Well, so in my case, I figured out what I call, when I advise people who want to shift from a day job to becoming a creative, I tell them, you got to know your MLI, your minimal livable income. So back then I was living in New York. I was married to my then wife. She's European and she didn't have a green card. So we were basically one household. Only I could legally work because I had a J1 visa, right? Which authorized me to work. Now I figured out I was earning maybe around 8,000 a month. I figured out that between me and Christina, we needed four grand to survive in New York. So I started this little business on the side to sell meditation CDs. And I remember the first month I lost 300 bucks. The second month I lost 500. The third month I lost 800. The fourth month I was making four bucks a day in profit. Now I celebrated this four bucks a day. You know, that was a venti Starbucks. <laughs> right. and, and before you know it, in month five, I'm making $5 and 50 cents a day. Now get this, that's a venti Starbucks with whipped cream and hazelnut flavoring. And so that was a big fucking deal to me. I remember bragging to my friends, I have this side hustle. I have this side gig. It's getting me free Starbucks every day. Now I continued celebrating that, building that up in my nights and weekends. And it went up to $6 and $8 and $10 a day. And at the end of one year, it hit $4,000 a month. That was what I was making. Now, as soon as it hit my MLI, my minimal livable income, I went to my boss and I quit. I quit my job, right? I quit my job, but the problem was I was an immigrant. When I quit my job, I also had to give up my US visa and I couldn't figure out how to stay in America. That's how I ended up back in Malaysia. Aha. I love the minimum income as a concept. I preach the same thing. And as a vehicle, I'd say, well, what can you do where you actually have a chance to work your side hustle around a, a flexible schedule. That's why sales jobs or restaurant jobs or bartending or some of the more flexible jobs, they provide a little bit of an opportunity where some other, you know, 40 hour a week jobs weren't. I think it's fantastic and interesting that we prescribe the same thing, but I'm really enamored with your willingness. And this is what I want to poke at next is your willingness to give up your status with your visa in order to go on your own? Because for some, they would keep that. And so tell me what the state of mind was. I would love to say that I was brave and I was bold and I was willing to quit my job and give up my visa. But the truth is a little bit darker. So if you don't mind me sharing the truth, but people react to it differently, but allow me to be open. So Donald Trump, as you know, has spoken about a Muslim watch list. In 2016, he tried to launch a Muslim watch list. And everyone from the founders of Twitter to the founders of Google marched on the streets and the Muslim watch list was disbanded. But the reality of the situation is the Muslim watch list was instituted in 2003 after September 11. I don't blame anyone. Mm -hmm. America had been attacked. The watch list was instituted and 72,000 men between the ages of 18 to 45 who were born in Muslim countries were added to that watch list. I'm not a Muslim, nor do I even think my religion should factor in, but I was born in Malaysia, which is a country with a 50% Muslim population. I was added to that watch list. And all of a sudden, I had to report to the government every four weeks for fingerprinting, for them to take my mugshot and to go through an interview. I could not board a plane without a two-hour interview. I could not get off a plane without a two-hour interview. I was not allowed to use certain airports. I was suddenly living my life like I was in parole. I loved America. My then wife and I, we wanted our first child to be born in America. I was ready to live here and make this my country. And I love the country. And the funny thing is, 
I was a Fox News watching, George Bush loving, right wing American immigrant. All of a sudden, I was added to a Muslim watch list and the illusion broke. And I realized that, you know, I couldn't live in America. I couldn't live like I was in parole. And that's why even though Mind Valley is an American company, we still are. Mm-hmm. I had to relocate to Malaysia because I could not live in America. Yeah, you it, couldn't it, operate, clearly. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. Hurtful. Now, this completely changed my political views. It completely changed my political views. Like, I, I was hooked on Fox News. All of a sudden, I'm like, it was so freaking confusing. Yeah. Okay? And so my entire world shifted. It was the most painful time of my life. And I had to rebuild my company, rebuild my life from Malaysia, a country I really hadn't lived in for almost a decade. Wow. If you've enjoyed this podcast, consider joining Mind Valley All Access. Now you can sign up to Mind Valley All Access and unlock every Mind Valley program instantly. Get access to transformation from all of the world's best minds in everything from parenting to biohacking to mind, body, spirit, entrepreneurship, work productivity. Learn from the likes of Ben Greenfield, Jim Quick, Shafali Sabari, Stephen Kotler, and more. All available to you for less than $2 a day. Simply visit mindvalley.com forward slash now. That's mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. And you'll be surprised to see that Mindvalley All Access now comes with advanced technologies to completely transform your learning, your networks, and your human connections, including our new private social network for students, Connections by Mindvalley, and our altered state inducement app, Ombana, which complements our regular training with altered state methodologies to transform you at a subconscious level. Check it all out on mindvalley.com forward slash N-O-W. Mindvalley.com forward slash now. You've made this decision for obvious reasons. There's a light bulb that's going off. You've changed politically. Your orientation is awake relative to how you identified before then. And you're like, all right, now I'm going back to Malaysia. And while the company Mind Valley was started in New York, you know, you now have to like operate this thing. So presumably you had a co-founder or some connection to the U.S. And what was that first chapter of Mind Valley like as you were living in a completely different world that you hadn't even been a part of for a decade? So it was really funny, right? So my co-founder was a German immigrant. He had just graduated from Stanford and he got a job at eBay. So he worked at eBay. And then my then wife, Christina, she was also part of the co-founding team. So it was three of us. Me and Christina were in Malaysia. And Mike, Mike, the German dude, had graduated Stanford. And he had just gotten a job at eBay. And he was working evenings on Mind Valley, which were mornings in Malaysia. Now, what was really funny is we would use this tool called Skype to communicate. Skype <laughs> had just been released. Now, Mike fell in love with Skype. And he went to Meg Whitman of eBay. And he's like, Meg, I think eBay needs to become a community company, I think we need to acquire Skype. And this happened because me and him were using Skype to run the business across two different geographic locations, much like we're talking right now. Now, here's the crazy thing. He makes such a great pitch for Skype. He flies to London with Meg Whitman. They acquire Skype for something like three plus billion. Skype becomes part of eBay. Mike gets awarded most valuable employee at eBay. But the stock options they give him are minimal. 
he gets pissed off. He's like, screw eBay. I wasn't really appreciated. After, you know, leading them to acquire Skype, he quits eBay, moves to Malaysia, and now our entire team is in Malaysia. But it's <laughs> funny. It's kind of funny. Our founding story led to the acquisition of Skype. Now, the story gets better. My partner that is Estonian. My children are born in Estonia. Estonia is the country where Skype was created. So all of this billions of dollars infuse Estonia, all of the Skype programmers that become really rich, and they start funding other startups. And now Estonia is the country with the highest number of entrepreneurs. Tallinn, the capital, is the city with the highest number of entrepreneurs per capita. So it's crazy how all of this gets connected. Now, the moral of the story there is this. Sometimes shit will happen in your life. In my case, I was kicked out of the US. Well, not really kicked out, but I was added to this horrible watch list. Yeah. But I realized that it led to so many beautiful things. It led to the situation with Skype. It led to Estonia, which is my other home, getting such an infusion of startup capital. And then when I moved to Malaysia, what happened was I didn't realize it then, but Malaysia was a hotbed for creativity. Some of the best universities for graphic designers and artists are right here. And so Mindvalley was able to tap into this talent. And we were a digital marketing company, an internet marketing company, but we rapidly became known for our beautiful aesthetics and design and photography. And that gave us an edge over the competition. So several years later, when YouTube had come out and all of these other publishing companies that were selling content were being eviscerated because of the new internet sites coming out, we could thrive and survive and continue growing everything worked out. Now in my book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, I talk about a concept called the beautiful destruction. And I think it's very relevant to what's happening right now. I believe that we are souls having a human experience. And I believe that every now and then, our soul will guide us into a trial by fire. I call this the beautiful destruction. It's when the world that we know has to collapse around us for a new version of ourselves to emerge. It's the metaphor of the phoenix emerging out of the fire. My first beautiful destruction was in 2003 when I had to leave the United States. My second beautiful destruction happened in 2008 when I almost lost the entire company during the recession. I'm going through my third beautiful destruction right now as a lot of divisions of our company, because we are big in events, have been completely wiped out because yeah. of COVID-19. And I wanted to share that message there because I think that as painful as this time can be, and I empathize with everyone who's going through the stress, the fear, the anxiety, I wonder if this is a form of global, beautiful destruction, and that something truly elegant, a new way of operating for our species, a new way of us expressing ourselves is going to emerge from this chaos we are in right now. I think we have no choice but to believe that. And you know, I think also it's fair and we as humans are capable of both recognizing and holding in one hand or one piece of our heart and our soul the fact that there's a tremendous amount of suffering happening right now, both with death and dying, with sickness, but of course a lot of businesses and our you know, many of our peers, as we were talking about, our businesses are eviscerated. So many of the creators who have built a business on a shoestring, you know, they are the first and hardest hit. And all those things can be true. And something good can come of this 
what amounts to a complete reworking of, well, so many things. One, culture, like the fact that we're connected social species. And now I just went for a walk where we are in Washington State. Our governor got on the social distancing very, very quickly. And while we are not locked in our home, we are permitted to go for a walk. It's fascinating to watch people live in Seattle. You've, you're familiar with Seattle. You've been here and worked at Microsoft and other places. It's gorgeous, but and it's very, you know, I'm just one one exit north of the downtown, so it's a little urban suburban, but people are crossing the streets so that we don't see one another. And that is totally antithetical to our nature as human beings, right? We're social animals. So, you know, even at the most fundamental level, our DNA level, we're being challenged. And I'm fascinated to see what good will come out of this and how long will we reckon back to this time? Will it be a lifetime? Is this the 2008? Is it 9-11? Is it all those things combined and more because it's a global affectation? I don't know. I'm just curious of what your sense is of how we will look back on this time. And if we can't clearly, as you said, we can something beautiful is coming of this destruction. But what's your perception of how we'll look back on this time? Well, I think there are two really remarkable things which are going to happen. Now, the first is I was just on my podcast interviewing Stephen Kotler, right? So Stephen Kotler is a dear friend. Yeah, dear friend. Love Stephen. Yeah. Abundance, bold, the future is faster than you think. And I said, as a futurist, what do you think is going to happen? Now, he said, one of the things that's exciting him most is that never before have so many scientists, so many researchers collaborated to solve one single thing right? So many entrepreneurs come together to solve one single thing. It's amazing to see scientists all around the world, all entrepreneurs at some level are doing everything they can in collaboration to solve one problem. This idea that we are in competition with one another has been eviscerated. But it's not only that. It's not only that. Not only is there, Kotler says, he's never seen scientists and researchers collaborate this well across the world. That's the first thing. This will become a habit. This habit will not go away. Once you move towards greater and greater collaboration, it's hard to go back to your old way of thinking because you see how much faster you can move. You see how much more lean you can be. You see that other people, other scientists, and other threat that there's so much good we can do when we are working together. This, I believe, is going to create an acceleration in exponential technologies and it's going to shift the world. You're going to see an acceleration in technologies across the planet. But that's just the first thing. The second thing is this. I've been working on a secret project, Chase. That project is to create a flag for the human species. Now, we're not ready for that yet because today we still identify ourselves as Americans or Malaysians, as Britons or Somalians or Pakistanis or Indians. But that day is coming to an end. When I was young, I used to watch this show called Star Trek. And I always was curious as to how in Gene Roddenberry, he's the creator of Star Trek, in his vision, it's one planet. There is no, it's the Earth Federation. It's one planet. People don't wear their national flag on their shoulder. They wear the Earth flag. And I believe that as a species, we have to move towards that level of self-identity. We have to start seeing ourselves as a singular connected species. We can get sick together, but we can also heal together. And only when we start thinking that way, 
can we truly solve some of the biggest problems facing humanity right now, like climate change, like COVID-19, like deforestation, like how our oceans are literally dying. But to do that, all of these problems require mass collaboration. Yet, most human beings are not at that level yet because national governments brainwash us. They make us believe that our biggest threats are Mexicans who are sneaking across the border. They make us believe that our biggest threats are Muslims. They make us believe that our biggest threats are trade wars with other countries. No, our biggest threats are that the air is getting filled with too much carbon dioxide, the oceans are literally dying, our soil is being depleted, and diseases and pandemics like COVID-19 will kill a lot of people. Now, when you start understanding the lies that are imposed upon us by our leaders, right, to keep us boxed in, to keep us separated, you start awakening. And when you awaken, you will never again vote for any leader, any politician who is anything but unity driven. Greta Thunberg, when she came on The Daily Show and she was asked, what's the number one thing people could do? She was very polite about it. Vote wisely. I believe that what we're going to see when we come out of this is human beings ready for collaboration across culture, religion, nationality. We're going to move towards an earth species. 10 years from now, we will have an earth flag. And what will happen is what you're seeing right now with Brexit, with Trump, is the last dying gasp of nationalism and separation. We can't continue down this path. This is the second big awakening that's going to happen in our planet right now. Now, as a species, we're already moving towards there. There was a famous study that showed that in the 1950s, only 4% of Americans believed that it was okay for a black and a white person to marry. 96% of Americans believed that it was wrong. Sammy Davis Jr. was supposed to perform at one of JFK's parties. He was uninvited because he, as a black man, dared to marry a white woman. By 1991, the odds had flipped. 51% of Americans believed that it was now okay for a black person and a white person to marry. We moved from seeing separation to going like, what the fuck? How is this even a thing? Today, if you poll the average American, maybe 4% would think that it's wrong for two races to marry. 96% would say that it's right. In a span of 80 years, 70 years actually, we went from 4% saying it was right to 4% saying it was wrong. That's a huge tidal wave. But this is how fast we are moving towards becoming a unified species. This just got accelerated. It just got massively accelerated. The Republican Party, will probably never win an election again unless they stop the separatist bullshit. And I'm not saying this as an American, I'm saying this as an observer of what's happening in your country. Brexit would never have happened in this time. We will see a temporary closing of borders, but people understand that that is to create better isolation, like what we're doing in our homes right now. But the only way we can beat this is for scientists across the world to collaborate. And once that happens, and we see that it's okay, for people across the world to unify across petty little boundaries, there is no going back. I love Stephen Codler, his big thinking, and I love the story that you just shared in your conversation from with him. And I know you've got a lot of your own beliefs in there, having researched a lot of the way you think and talk. And I couldn't agree more. I believe that we've seen this in other industries. You recognize it in race relations. And while 
there still is work to be done on all of these, especially <laughs> like uh, it was just Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday. So his thoughts are very timely and prescient right now. We see this acceleration and we've seen it in the human genome being solved. For example, they said we're going to solve the human genome in 10 years. One year in, they were 1% complete and everyone started throwing in the towel. Two years in, I think they were 2 or 3% complete. Three years in, you know, in, in the short story too long here is it exponentially accelerates and you actually don't get the benefit of solving for what technologies are going to be around in 10 years. And if you apply that same logic to the transition of our planet as divisive towards something that is unified, and I like the idea of the earth flag, I think that's brilliant. You can see a golden era emerging on the backside of something right now that we you know, we almost can't conceive of it because there's so much noise in the system right now. I love your story. I think it's so appropriate and so well-timed, and especially in a moment where, you know, if you watch the news, you believe that this is scary and it's violent. And the reality is, if you read the book Factfulness, which is one of Bill Gates's top reads from last year, or uh, if you study the data carefully, it's the safest time it's ever been. There are so many things that we are led to believe about violence that are extraordinarily, infinitely the other side of the spectrum that we we don't believe that. Now, reporting on violent crime, as an example, up 10,000 percent, violent crime down 50 percent over the course of the last decade. But you wouldn't believe that. And I love your application of the human spirit and of unity as a downstream effect of what we're experiencing right now. It's just beautiful. Thank you. I want to also take a moment, recognize that we are recording this live. It's not called Chase Jarvis Live on Accident. It was founded as a live show more than 10 years ago and about, I don't know, I'd say three months ago now, we made it live again, the process of recording it. So you can really watch it now in real time when we're making it. And of course, we publish a polished version downstream. But what I love is recognizing some of the community who are chiming in. We've got Denmark, we've got Philippines, we've got Texas, we've got people from all walks of life. We've got some Scandinavia in the house. And there's a couple of questions that I want to ask and respect the community who are listening. And Ash Jensen asked a handful. I want to narrow it down to one. What do you see thriving in the future based on our current universal situation? If you could narrow it down, because you've talked about a lot of things, is there a, a word or can you put something in the palm of our hands that would be an explication of all of these things or a simplification of them into one thing? Absolutely. What we're going to see arising in the future are exponential technologies that are going to change the way we live, right? For example, I was talking to Ray Kurzweil, the VP of engineering of Google, and I asked Ray a simple question. I bet all of you have seen Iron Man, right? The Marvel movies, Avengers. And Tony Stark has his AI called Jarvis. He can ask Jarvis anything, and Jarvis answers. I asked Ray Kurzweil, how soon before all of us have Jarvis in our cell phones? And he said, you know, it's going to happen by 2029. Now, 2029 is nine years away, right? But nine years from now, all of us will have our own personal artificial intelligence in our cell phone. Now, when that happens, we effectively have 
a backup brain, but not just a backup brain. We have a backup brain that is more intelligent than any human being who's ever lived. Imagine having Einstein, having Theodore Roosevelt, having Abraham Lincoln, having all of the smartest people in the world, like just behind you at any given point, ready to help you make decisions. All of us will have that by 2029. Now, what happens when we have access to all of that knowledge at that speed? Well, the world starts operating through an exponential shift. If you think technology is progressing fast right now, wait till you see what's going to happen then. But there will also be a disruption. Because of this, many fields, many careers that rely on certain types of knowledge are going to get disrupted. AI is going to replace lawyers. AI is going to replace copywriters. So many different fields are going to be replaced by AI. Now, what does that leave us to do? Well, I think the one thing AI cannot yet replace is human creativity and human intuition. AI can produce art. I've seen some of it, but it's sucky art. Yeah, it's terrible. <laughs> yeah. And where I would advise people to hone their skills for this future of AI is to learn how to bring creativity into whatever they do, whether you're a musician, whether you're an artist, whether you're a photographer, whether you're a painter, hone your creative abilities. And you don't have to do it solo. You can do it using algorithms, using AI. For example, I'm a copywriter. I love writing. I use an AI-based tool called Grammarly to write faster. AI becomes a complement to what I do. So that's the first thing. But the second thing is hone your own personal growth. The knowledge that you learn from schools is going to become increasingly less important. The knowledge that is going to matter is knowledge on health and fitness, on mindset, on human skills, on intuition, on accessing altered traits, the knowledge that you get from creative life, that you get from Mind Valley, those are going to become the new wealth. The most successful people in the world, it's not going to be your MBA or the knowledge you got from an Ivy League university. It's going to be the knowledge of personal growth and awareness. Those are two things which I think people should really focus on. That is fantastic advice, and not because that you and I will both be beneficiaries of that, but because the world is already awakening to this. And I think it was fascinating in 20, it was either 2018 or 2019 at the World Economic Forum, Jack Ma, founder and CEO, a former CEO rather, of Alibaba, one of the richest men in the world, and arguably one of the most data-centric and AI-focused individuals he was asked the question like, oh, so your kids are uh, learning to code, right? And he was like, well, my kids? Oh, no, 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 you must have that wrong because computers are already teaching other computers to code. So my kids, art, physical health and wellness, spirituality, intuition, connection. You know, he basically gave all, listed all of these, what would be, you, you could articulate as soft skills in sort of normal everyday parlance. And it's really exactly what you just described. And so, you know, whether you're recognizing and listening to you, Vision, or reading your books or the, the Buddha and the Badass or studying at Mind Valley or Creative Live, the people who are the brightest and the most forward thinking people in our culture, one of which I'll just use again, Jack Ma, you can point to so many folks who are in plant medicine or in future forward physics or the Richard Branson's, the entrepreneurs, there's a, a universal sort of understanding that I feel like is starting to shape in a way that we haven't seen 
in, you know, ever before towards exactly what you're saying. Now, let's play devil's advocate for a second. Let's try and throw rocks at our very own theory that we're sort of cheerleading here. And what would the naysayers say? Because somewhere we just listed a bunch of corners of the globe that are tuning into our broadcast right now. Somewhere someone's throwing rocks at our precious little idea here. What are what are the haters saying and what would you say back to them? Well, you know, when I first started speaking about intuition, I was on the Dave Asprey podcast. And Dave Asprey, of course, famous biohacker. I don't know if you've ever had him on this show, but it's a pretty big podcast. Yeah, and Bulletproof. He also did Bulletproof yeah. Coffee, Bulletproof Executive. Yeah, he's been on Creative Live, of course. And the funny thing is, people went to my book from his podcast on Amazon and gave me like one-star reviews for the Code of the Extraordinary Mind because how dare I say that all of us have intuition, right? That we can <laughs> tap into these life forces. Now, the funny thing is, Dave and I go to meditation classes together. Dave and I go to intuition training classes together, like using neuro training. He doesn't talk about it. Back then, he didn't talk about it on his podcast because he didn't want to alienate his audience. But it's gotten so scientific, so yeah. scientific. So anyway, yes. No, no, so go there. I can tell you want to go there. Let's go there. You use. So I'm saying that naysayers say that this is bullshit, this is rubbish. But again, if you look at what people like Dave Asprey are doing, he's actually applying neuro training to access theta levels of mind to tap into intuitive ability. Stephen Kotler wrote the book, Stealing Fire, talking about altered states and how it's now a trillion dollar economy. When I first started teaching meditation in 2003, and my meditation, the silver method, was about accessing altered states, I couldn't tell my friends from Michigan about it because they thought I had fallen prey to some bullshit cult-like scam talking about meditation and intuition. It wasn't cool then, but right now, it's actually going through an exponential curve in terms of research. There's a new book that just came out called Altered Traits by Daniel Goldman. In the introduction for the book, he shows a curve of scientific studies on meditation, and it's going like this. It's exponential. There were a tiny number of scientific studies on meditation in 2003. That's gone up by about a hundredfold right now. So if people don't believe in this, I don't blame them. They could be at 2015 or 2016 and looking at the knowledge then. It's been four years. It's increased by a massive multiple. Right now, 44%, last year actually, 40%, 44% of the Fortune 100 had meditation classes for their employees. Now, the next big shifts you're going to see are exactly what I'm talking about. Companies within five years are going to be teaching employees how to tap into intuition and altered states. This is already happening. There's a huge movement towards plant medicine. I just did an ayahuasca trip. I got a new algorithm for my app during an ayahuasca trip. I actually have programmers testing and deploying that algorithm right now. It came during an ayahuasca trip. Another entrepreneur I spoke to said any Silicon Valley CEO who is not using plant medicine is at a competitive disadvantage. Now, what is plant medicine doing? It's helping you tap into these altered states. More and more people are doing it. Few people speak about it because it's still judged wrongly in many parts of the world. So that's the first one. But the second thing that you're going to be happening is a concept called bending reality. Within 10 years, CEOs and the top performers in the world are going to be using their mind to warp the fabric of reality to increase the probability of certain outcomes happening. 
That does not surprise me at all. I guess we're we're cut from the same cloth and we travel in similar circles, but I love that you are so passionately sharing this with the global audience that's tuned in with us right now. I want to be mindful of our time. And so I just have a couple of closing questions. First, what is the best place for people to test their intuition? I really, to me, this is the number one thing that we've been pushing on in our conversation. And it's, it's what I hope people leave with is this idea of the power of intuition. You've spoken so eloquently about it. I'm asking you to give people a place in their life to look for it and an opportunity to explore it a little more. What would you recommend? Well, the first thing is I would recommend meditation, but there are two types of meditation. I do not recommend pure passive meditation, breathing, calming yourself down. It's good. If you're not doing it, you can start there. But if you want to get to the next level where you're applying meditation for intuition and what I call bending reality, I want you to check out the six-phase meditation. This is a meditation protocol that I invented and I made it completely free. You can search for it. There are apps on it. There are YouTube videos on it. There's a free program on it at mindvalley.com forward slash learn dash meditation. And as I made it free, it got picked up by professional athletes. So professional athletes around the world are now publicly talking about it. Bianca Andrescu, when she beat Serena Williams at the US Open, and they asked her, like, she was 19 years old. In September last year, she beat Serena Williams. They asked her, what are you doing? And she held up my book, The Code of the Extraordinary Mind, which is the book in which I introduced a six-phase meditation to the world. And what she was doing is for three years between 2016 and 2019, she was visualizing beating Serena Williams. Now, at the same time, Miguel, the R&B star behind the songs Remember to Forget and the music from the Pixar film Coco, he spoke about in Billboard magazine how he uses the six-phase meditation before his concerts with his entire team. Now, I've made it completely free. It's being used by a lot of celebrities, pop stars, people at the top of performance because they find that when they do it, they are instantly performing better. But what's really happening is the ability to tap into flow states, the ability to tap into intuitive impulse accelerates. This manifests as being more intelligent, having better ideas, being more creativity. But the other thing that's happening is they start seeing synchronicities in their life. Coincidences, the right people showing up, projects going to moving faster and at ease. That's what happens when you practice the six-phase meditation. I won't say anymore. Just Google it. It's completely free. I love it. I believe deeply in a lot of the flow states. I think there's a number of ways to access them. I'll check out your six-phase meditation. And it's just great to know that it's at people's fingertips, whether through meditation and or synchronicities and just starting to look for them. It is quite powerful to know that it is just how close it is in proximity to wherever you are right now. And I like to say the distance between where you are and where you want to be is probably closer than you think. Now, the last question I have is much less grandiose. We focused on the intuition part, which I thought was really, really important. And I want to say thank you so much. I want to recognize you and the work you put into Mind Valley. Uh, congratulate you and also high five you as someone who's in the same industry as I am around trying to help people tap into their true potential. So I want to acknowledge you and say thanks so much. But importantly, like, what's the best place to find you on the internet? And uh, give us some coordinates, if you would. Well, definitely check out Mind Valley. But I recommend you go to mindvalley.com forward slash learn dash meditation and get the six-phase program free. Love it. 
thank you so much for being on the show or in a sense performing live for us as we're tuned in here at creativelive.com slash TV. We're going into the homes and kitchen counters and, you know, I see the couch behind you, the bookshelf. It's just really, it's been really fun to step into the private lives, if you will, of so many in our community. And so thank you for walking us into your personal space. Thank you, Vision, for joining us and been a great treat to have you on the show. We will have you back when the time is right. And I can't wait to help the world discover all that you've done. Thank you so much for being on the show, bud. Thank you, Chase. It was great meeting you. And this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.